Hey, it's Alan Carter. Here's what's on the podcast today. Why you gotta treat me like a Pfizer vaccine? Oh, it's here, all right. Plus, we'll look at the SIU report into the killing of DeAndre Campbell. Let's get to it. Oh, it's happened. I just watched it live. <laughs> the very first vaccine to be administered in the province of Ontario. It's happened. It just happened. Can we go to that live feed? Because they're, they're giving another one right now. What does that sound like? Probably doesn't sound like a whole lot other than roll up your sleeve. What do we got here? Rob's got the the live button. We're going to take you there live. It's happening right now on Hospital Row in Toronto. The vaccine is here. It has just been administered. The first dose going to a personal support worker, Anita Quindangan, the very first person in the province of Ontario to receive the COVID-19 vaccine. What do we got, Rob? We got anything? Any sound from there? We don't. We're, we're working on it. You know what we're doing? We're working on it. Nevertheless, it's here, and it's exciting. Isn't it exciting? And, you know, certain things have entered the, entered the lexicon now. Now you can say uh, things to your spouse, for example, is like, how come you're treating me like a Pfizer vaccine, baby? Don't be so cold. You, just, you can work that <laughs> in. That's good. Yeah. But I'm t- I tell you what, I watch, I just watch, are, are you, by the way, are you just about done watching um, video of people getting needles? Because I don't, if, if you do what I do for a living, which is uh, co-host a nightly television program here, a local news program here on Global, uh, we run, I, I, it must be out of the hour, I would say, I don't know, about 57 minutes of it is people getting Needles, just shots of people getting needles over and over and over again. Syringes going into flesh, just it over and over, and it's enough to make you queasy. But I tell you, after watching this one being handed out, by the way, the other person, the number two person apparently getting the vaccine in Ontario, and I love this because the second person to get a vaccine, for some reason, always has the best name. In, in the U.K., it was William Shakespeare. Here, the second person on the list, according to what the Ontario government gave out, is a person by the name of Lucky Agulia. You feel lucky, punk? Do you? And as I watch those needles go in, do you have any of the queasiness of the needle? I have. I used to have. I tell you what, I had. I had the phobia. I had the needle phobia. And, you know, in my 20s, and even in my early 30s, you know, I'd go, you know, you'd, you'd go for a needle or you'd, you'd go to have a blood sample taken and I'd have to lie down and I'd get the cold sweats and the whole bit. And I did not like needles. Didn't care for them. Needle phobia. You know what cured me of that? Watching my two children be born. Yeah, I watched two children come into this world with no anesthetic. And I'll tell you, at the, at the end of that, I, after watching that, I thought, you know what? I think I can handle the needle. I think I'm fine. I think, give, give me a needle. I don't care. Because, wow, that's a different level right there. So now I'm fine with needles. <laughs> Bring them on. But as we watch what happened on the University Health Network and also on, I mean, Hospital Row, pardon me, in Toronto, and also happening in Toronto today as they begin with the needles and the vaccine, remember, it's a two-dose vaccine, ice-cold baby Pfizer. I think we need today, to, for a better understanding, 
of what today means is I think we need to turn to the greatest orator of the 20th century. And I need to take you back to the fall of 1942. And I know the war analogies can get a little tired when we talk about COVID versus war. But in this case, I think it applies. Let me set the scene for you. The Battle of El Alamein has just wrapped up. And Allied forces had pushed Rommel and the Nazis out of Egypt. For the first time, there was good news for the Allied front. For the first time for Britain, which had stood alone for so long, there was good news. On November 10th, at London's Mansion House, Prime Minister Winston Churchill said this. Ah, this is not the end. Uh, It is not even the beginning of the end. Uh, But it is perhaps the end of the beginning. This is not the end, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning. Winston Churchill, in 1942, with words that ring so true today, as this now sets us off on a new path, on a new set of challenges. And from this point forward, we will look at the pandemic differently. The challenges will be different. But even though the challenges will be different as we look at logistics and trying to get the vaccine out We are faced more immediately with a bigger crisis. And that story is told in the Daily Numbers, 1940. Again, are your Daily Numbers. Don't get too hung up on what that number is particularly, other than it continues to hover around 2,000, just shy of 2,000, which means that the lockdown that we have put in place in Toronto and Peel, and it is now in place in York Region and also in Windsor, it has not made a dent. Certainly, we flattened it. The number has not continued to go up, but it has not brought the number down. To further tell the story, 23 more deaths in the last 24 hours in the province of Ontario. Your hospitalizations up 44. ICUs are down 9. Here are your breakdowns in terms of local public health. And I tell you this because the last number here is going to stand right out for you. Toronto, 554. Pardon me, 544 for Toronto. Peel, 390. York, 191. Windsor, 114. All of those areas in lockdown. Here's the, the key number I was holding out on you. Hamilton, 134. Hamilton, 134 new cases in the past 24 hours. Could be a reporting anomaly, but if that number holds up and continues to gain, Hamilton will be joining other portions of the province in a lockdown. Possibly that announcement could come as early as this weekend. So, to the vaccine, when do I get my slice? When do I get my tranche? Is that what you're thinking right now? As you see that historic video of the very first vaccine being handed out here in the province of Ontario, are you wondering about when are you going to get your bit, your, I love that word, tranche, your slice slice of vaccine? 
Or are you one of those people that are like, you know, I'm going to hold off. I don't, I don't know about this. I'm going to hold off. Well, I tell you, in the early going, there's not going to be enough vaccine for the number of people who want it. So those of you out there who are vaccine hesitant, I don't really care. I don't think any of us really care. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think we have to be conscious of communication. And we have to be respectful and try and, you know, talk to people on their own level and address their concerns because I think there are legitimate concerns people have about the speed in which this vaccine has uh, come to market and has been approved. But in the early going, when there are so many people absolutely, and I I don't use this word lightly, absolutely dying to get this vaccine, then you vaccine-hesitant folks whatever don't care not interested because next up the next challenge we have is the clamor because the clamor is going to get going and all of these questions about how do we tell who's got the vaccine who doesn't have the vaccine like for example these personal support workers who are getting the very first crash of vaccines in toronto today Remember, they got to still got to get a second dose. But once they get that second dose and they have the immunity, are they going to get like a special card, like maybe like a card you can wear in a hat, like those old press cards? That'd be cool. You know the movie Contagion that we all, that many of us, you know, hate watched early in the pandemic. Did you watch Contagion? It's the one where Gwyneth Paltrow dies a horrible death. It's just that is worth right there. I mean, if you're tired of, you know, watching Seven, Head in a Box, it, then this, a Contagion is for you. But nevertheless, at the end of Contagion, which, you know, which is about a pandemic, and so much in Contagion has turned out to be kind of true. They have these special bracelets that they give you, these sort of marker you put on this bracelet and the thing, and, you, and that tells the world that you've, you know, you, you got the vaccine. And these are the questions that we have to grapple with now. Not whether or not, oh, I'm going to wait a year. Whatever. Whatever. Plenty of people in line in front of you. Go ahead. Get to the back. Doesn't matter. And history in the province of Ontario just in the last half an hour as the very first of the COVID-19 vaccines were administered here in Toronto earlier this morning. Doug Ford tweeting out a photo of himself at a landing strip, I believe it was in Hamilton, where the first shipments touched down. Dofo in a sweet uh, safety vest, making sure he's there. Remember, no Dofo show today. We're not getting the daily 1 o'clock updates, but we do have other things to chew on, and that namely is the vaccine being administered. I want to play this for you here. This is... The moment when the very first vaccine administered in the province of Ontario to Anita Quindagan, who is a personal support worker. (laughs) (laughs) And following that, Anita exchanged some elbow bumps with some medical officials who were there with the applause. I wasn't sure what kind of applause, what kind of vaccine applause do you, I think it should be more of a kind of a golf clap, like a, or maybe, maybe more of a, maybe some kind of a cricket announce, like, well, he is, something like that. 
I don't know. Uh, but I t- said in our, our last segment, I talked about the second person in the province uh, being named Lucky. Uh, that turned out to be uh, fake news, as they say. Uh, the the order was switched around at the last moment. Maybe somebody was vaccine hesitant. Who knows? But they weren't vaccine hesitant for very long because here's Lucky's in the number four spot. So those of you scoring at home, it goes Anita, Cecil, Derek, Lucky, Colette. That's your order for vaccines in the province of Ontario. Big, big day here. And, of course, a lot of questions to be answered about when do we get more, who's next, and how do we possibly make sure that we have an equitable rollout that doesn't victimize people by saying, well, no, you're back of the line, you know, whatever group it is, and therefore you can't, you know, can't go see Dune when it comes out in the theaters because you haven't got a vaccine. Did you see that Google went down for about an hour this morning? Massive outage. Uh, people could not uh, watch their YouTube videos. You couldn't get makeup tutorials or whatever it is that you look at on YouTube. For some reason, I just like I like watching van conversions. I, that's my thing. You've got to be kidding me. I know, Doug. It's weird. I like people. I like watching people convert vans into, you know, living spaces and then living in vans because I essentially think that that's what's coming for me. So I'm trying to prepare. Eventually, I'm going to have to live in a van. But it, but my point is is that YouTube uh, went down. So did the ability to access Gmail and Google Docs. And the outage also made Google Classroom temporarily unavailable. Now it's back up. Most of it's back up, although apparently there's still some glitches with Gmail. But Google Classroom went down. Now just think for a second about that. And it went down early this morning, so I don't think it had a real big impact in North America. But so many kids use Google Classroom, you know, to be online. And, you know, we had, what, another four schools? The TDSP has now closed, moved everybody to virtual. And so now you have a situation where if you get a you know an outage like that, that has a real impact, you know, right across society. Every you know, used to be you know there'd be an outage just like wow, gosh, MySpace went down. That's horrible. And now now something goes down, and the entire everybody in the society is like, well, I don't know what to do anymore. I don't know. I can't watch my videos. What's going on in the stock market? Have you noticed what happened last week with IPOs, initial stock offerings, uh, public offerings? Two companies last week went public, and I, I need to tell you about it because to me, you know, and I'm, you know, I, I don't even play a financial expert on TV, but I think anybody looking at what happened last week in the market has got to be thinking, is there just a little touch of irrational exuberance going on out there? Is, is it possible that investors are getting high off all this vaccine news? You just, just the fumes from the vaccine are making you a little giddy? Because Airbnb, which of course you know is the home-sharing company, well, it had its IPO on Thursday. And on Thursday, after the initial public offering, the shares closed on that day at 144 bucks a pop. That was more than double the price that Airbnb had set. And that closing price gave the company a valuation over $100 billion. Now, just to keep you updated, I'm just checking the markets right now. It is down somewhat from that, down to 126 down uh, on the day. It opened today at 135 now down to a 136 is some of that exuberance 
uh, wears off. But but that makes Airbnb, you know, bigger than a a number of the biggest hotel chains out there combined with a hundred billion dollar market cap. Airbnb has never posted a profit ever. And considering that we're in the midst of a pandemic, I mean, I know we're all high on the vaccine fumes, but Airbnb's revenue fell 32% this year in the first nine months of the year. But here is why there is such exuberance for this stock offering. Because in the months since, Airbnb's business has rebounded faster than hotels. You know, people are like, well, if I have to travel, I'm not staying in a hotel, but I might rent out an entire home and feel that that is safer. So that's Airbnb. Meanwhile, this just comes after another San Francisco-based company, DoorDash, soared in its public offering as well. In fact, this thing was huge too, but it's been absolutely eclipsed by Airbnb. But DoorDash, its stock jumped 85.8% after its initial public offering. And it raised $3.4 billion dollars. These are two companies that are disruptors. Airbnb, as we know in the city of Toronto, has caused enormous hardships in terms of affordable housing. It has taken so many condos, so many homes off the market, put it into the short-term pool, and taken it out of the rental market, and it has driven up affordability in the province of Ontario. Just go out to Prince Edward County. Just try that. Go out to Prince Edward County, where they, you know, where wineries, which are doing a great business, pre-pandemic, of course, before time, but they can't get people, they can't get employees because out there in the county, there's no place for employees to stay. They all have to live in Belleville and commute. They have to go a long way. And you know why? Because all the rental stock has been taken over by Airbnb because owners know that short-term rentals make a lot more money disruptor. Airbnb is a disruptor. So is DoorDash. A disruptor in terms of converting workers into low-paid, self-employed delivery people. When the pandemic is over, which of these two companies do you think gets a bigger bump? When we finally all get the vaccines in our arms. Does Airbnb's valuation come down because we can go back to hotels and feel better about that? I don't know. Airbnb is a monster. DoorDash, when we start going back to restaurants again, we stop worrying so much about whether or not we're using DoorDash or Uber Eats or Save the Skip the Dishes or any number of those. There's a bunch of other ones that we can choose from. And yeah, you can choose VRBO for, you know, other than Airbnb if you want. But Airbnb, the market dominance here is enormous. And I know we've all talked about condos being more affordable and the fact that since the Airbnb, you know, the whole system is kind of shut down with the pandemic, that there are, you know, there are more rental options and rental spaces have come back a little bit in the city of Toronto. It's not going to stay that way. It's not going to stay that way. Hey, uh, you folks up there in York Region, how you feeling being locked down? Did you get a little shopping done over the weekend? Hit the mall? 
Or maybe you just thought to yourself, you know what I'm going to do instead? I'm going to go to Costco. Because I can go to the Costco. I can get whatever I need. Saw this story on the weekend that Whole Foods, Whole Foods, these are the same people that, remember, told their employees not they couldn't wear the poppy and then had, you know, that went radio silent for, what, 24 hours and then once said, well, I guess that was a bad idea and climbed down from it. But here's what Whole Foods has done. It's taken out its buffet. You know, it's like, you know, you can go get a little expensive olive at the, you know, the... You know, with the thing, the sneeze guard, you know what I'm talking about, where they have that. Well, they've taken all of that out because you can't have that during COVID, you know, shared utensils and all that stuff. Can't have it. So what What have they done? They've replaced it with kids' toys, Christmas toys. You want a stuffed animal? You can go to Whole Foods. Is that fair? Is that right? Here's Dan Kelly. This Ontario, is Dan Kelly. Go ahead. Ontario is the only province that has this bizarre policy where an independent business has to be fully closed to in-store sales, where their larger counterpart can remain open as long as they sell groceries as well. And the piece that's really turning this into anger on the part of the business community is that it's illegal to buy a book in Toronto, Peel, New York, Windsor now, but you can go to Costco with 200 other people breathing over your neck and buy one there. And that, that is dead. you know, nobody has explained properly how, why that would be allowed. Sorry about that, Dan. That is Dan Kelly, who is uh, with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. The Special Investigations Unit, that is the SIU, it is the civilian agency in the province of Ontario that oversees the police. It has released a report into the death of DeAndre Campbell. The province's special investigation unit says there is, quote, no basis to proceed with criminal charges in the death of the 26-year-old. Campbell was shot and killed by a Peel Regional Police officer in April while in his family's Brampton, Ontario home. Quote, there are no reasonable grounds to believe that the officer committed a criminal offense in connection with Mr. Campbell's death. That is according to the press release put out by the SIU. DeAndre Campbell had called police himself. He wanted to be taken to hospital. Here is Claudius Campbell, DeAndre's father, talking to Global News earlier this year. They shouldn't be sending police with guns for a mental issue. They should be sending proper trained people with an ambulance. That is the father of DeAndre Campbell speaking to Global News earlier this year with one of the central issues that police forces right across this province, but especially in Peel, where there have been two high-profile cases, Mr. Campbell and also uh, Ijaz Chowdhury, both men suffering from mental illness. Peel police responded. There was an altercation of some sort, and those men ended up being shot. From the report, the SIU, this is what the director of the SIU found, that Mr. Campbell, DeAndre Campbell, became violent towards the officers, and they both attempted to subdue him with conducted energy weapons. This is just a way of saying a taser, which, of course, is a proprietary name, but going forward, I'm just going to say taser. This was ineffective. So the subject officer, that is a technical term referring to the officer that fired his weapon, the subject officer drew his firearm and shot Mr. Campbell. Mr. Campbell died at the scene. Also from the report, as was his legal right, the subject officer 
declined to be interviewed with the SIU and release a copy of his incident notes. And that is the right that the officer has. To talk more about this, I am pleased to welcome back to the program Global News reporter Camille Karamali, who's covering this story for us tonight. Hey, Camille. Hey, Alan. Yeah, you and I went through this uh, report quite thoroughly, didn't we? And uh, there was a lot to unpack here, uh, and a lot that actually came from this report. I think one of the most... um, I guess, jarring things that stands out to a lot of people that we saw in Aegis Chaudhry's case, that we saw in Regis Korczynski-Piquet's case, is that the subject officer, the person who uh, fired the guns uh, or, or was involved um, primarily in the death, uh, chose not to take part in an interview with SIU. And really, that um, makes it difficult for the SIU uh, in in very many regards to fully conduct their investigation. They actually did say that uh, that means there is no direct evidence on what exactly the officer was thinking that night in April when he shot and killed Campbell inside his Brampton home. So uh, I think that was one big takeaway from this report. Another thing is that, uh, you know, the report also does highlight that Campbell was holding a knife when police arrived, uh, but, you know, he was using it to prepare food in the kitchen. Um, But also on top of that, I mean, what the SAU report does say is that there was really no attempt made to um, uh, calm uh, Campbell down. Uh, what it sort of highlights in several paragraphs is that uh, the situation escalated very quickly because all of a sudden these police storm in to somebody who has uh, bipolar disorder and schizophrenia who's holding a knife cooking in his kitchen, um, you know, to put the knife down. There's a lot of yelling going on. And so, um, you know, the uh, what SAU determined was that police really did not handle this quite well in terms of um, from a mental uh, health standpoint, dealing with somebody who has mental illness by barging in and yelling and screaming to put the knife down, and it sort of just escalated naturally from there. Yeah, the the report points out that that is precisely what happened. So, to just take you through what the report tells us is it it says that police respond first of all. There's the call to nine one one from Campbell himself. He had previously called the the officers had responded to his home before, had transported him uh, to medical facilities previous. Uh, The family believed that this is what was going to happen again. The officers arrived. Um, They went in, and uh, Mr. Campbell was in the kitchen near um, an island. He had the knife, and immediately, uh, upon seeing the knife, the two officers uh, took out their tasers and, in fairly short order, um, fired their tasers, and uh, Campbell falls to the ground. The subject officer tries to subdue him and take the knife away. There's a a scuffle ensues. Uh, Campbell gets back up. He's unsteady on his feet. This is when uh, the officers um, take their revolvers out of their holster, and the subject officer fires twice. And what the report says is that there was no attempt to try and mitigate that, to try to communicate, But what the SIU finds is that it is entirely reasonable that the subject officer believed that their lives were in danger, not only their own lives, but the lives of their um, fellow officers, and that it was reasonable to assume that by just removing themselves from the house and leaving, that the family might have been at risk as well. That's what the SIU has concluded here. 
But also on top of that, I mean, you summarized it quite well there, Alan. But on top of that, uh, one of the conclusions was that uh, the SAU does believe that there were alternatives into uh, their response in terms of uh, instead of immediately resorting to lethal force, there were alternatives available to them. And I'll read you uh, an excerpt from uh, part of the conclusion here that the SIU did determine. It is conceivable that a retreat of some extent might have de-escalated the situation and averted a physical and ultimately lethal confrontation. So they are saying that, you know, um, the way that police initially handled this, uh, as you so well put it, um, was part of the reason as to why it resulted, uh, or a big part of the reason as to why it resulted in Campbell's death. Um, instead, as it turned out, the SO immediately began to yell at Mr. Campbell upon entering the kitchen to drop the knife while pointing a CEW, which you referred to as a taser, um, conversationally at him, quickly turning the interaction into an armed standoff. Those are two big words there, armed standoff. So automatically, I mean, somebody who's who has mental health issues um, hears screaming, yelling, and somebody pointing, you know, a, a weapon at him, uh, it's automatically going to um, set, send alarm bells ringing, uh, right? So uh, that's that's essentially what they determined. But still, at the end of it all, they determined that um, there was some aspect of it that did seem like self-defense, that they do believe that um, this uh, uh, officer was acting in self-defense in some capacity and of himself and of his other two officers that were there. Camille, any reaction from the family yet? Yeah, we uh, actually have been reaching out to Yvonne Campbell's uh, mother, uh, DeAndre's mother, who has spoken very openly earlier this year. Um, but uh, they have not received our calls just yet. But I did reach out to Malton People's Movement, who have sort of put together these rallies of uh, families of victims who have... Uh, died at the hands of uh, Peel police. And so they're, they're much more in touch with the family. They are planning a press conference later this afternoon. So we should have a better understanding of how this family is reacting to this uh, to this outcome here uh, by 5.30 in our 5.30 newscast. All right. Looking forward to seeing your report tonight on Global News. Camille Caramali, always great to talk to you. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Alan, as always. I just want to go back to the report and to sum up this way, because... Although the report finds that there are reasonable grounds to believe that the officer who fired the fatal shots killing DeAndre Campbell, that really the point is that the SIU scope is very narrow. What its scope is to determine is whether or not that is plausible, whether or not there is a criminal action undertaken by the officer in shooting DeAndre Campbell. And according to the SIU, it did not meet that bar. But I want to read this for you. The SIU's mandate is a narrow one. This is from the SIU. It is to determine whether there are reasonable grounds to believe there is a criminal offense has been committed by applying the law as it stands to the facts as they are discerned, not to delve into broader public policy considerations that may be implicated in any particular case. There are other bodies with mandates and competence to conduct those reviews. In other words, the SIU, in its narrow focus, has determined that no crime was committed by the officer that fired the shots. But if you read this report, you understand that the way we respond, the way we respond to criminal 
or pardon me, to mental health calls continues to be a huge problem. It's a problem in the case of Ejaz Chowdhury. It was a problem in the case of Regis Korchinsky Paquette. And it will continue to be a problem until we confront it. And hiding behind an SIU report that says, well, we only look at this narrow thing here like that. That's not going to get it done. There's a lot of things to concentrate on today. The vaccine. Great news. There's some great news out there. There's reasons to be hopeful, and let's hold on to that. But as a society, we have to start tackling this sort of thing, or we're just going to continue to read reports like this that say, well, that's too bad. Gee, we should have done something different there. Next! It's not enough. Needs to change. That's the podcast for today. Don't forget, The Alan Carter Show, live weekdays, starting at noon.